Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. The war-torn country of Yemen is seen by analysts as a territory of limited strategic value, with some ability to threaten vital shipping lanes in the adjacent Red Sea. And while local groups are vehemently fighting for control over this impoverished territory, the conflict is not only an internal one, rather, it is part of a regional struggle factoring in Iran, Saudi Arabia and even Turkey. To analyze the complexity of this war-ridden country, we're joined from Helsinki, Finland by Ate Kavila, who is a Finnish parliament member. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here, Jonathan. Absolutely. Also joining us all the way from the United Kingdom is uh, Colonel uh, retired Richard Camp, who is a former British commander and head of the International Counterterrorism Intelligence Team at the British Cabinet Office. Thank you for joining us as well, sir. It's a pleasure. Nice to see you again. Absolutely. Uh, and of course, here in the studio is our TV7 analy- uh, analyst, editor at large, host of uh, Watchmen Talk, Powers in Play, and so much more, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, give us a broader understanding on the current state of play in this country of Yemen. So, Jonathan, um, one uh, recalls the old line about Mexico being uh, so far from God, so close to the United States. And in Yemen's uh, case, it is so far from Allah and so close to Iran and other countries uh, around it that uh, its internal problems and divisions are, of course, being multiplied by the fact that uh, its uh, many neighbors and even uh, other uh, powers are uh, interested in what uh, is happening uh, inside it. So uh, if in the 1960s we had a coalition of Saudi Arabia, the United Kingdom, Israel in a clandestine way, and other Western powers um, supporting the so-called royalists at the time, and uh, Nasser's Egypt supporting uh, the rebels, now we have a similar uh, coalition of Saudi Arabia Uh, the United States, the United uh, Kingdom, and as you said, Oman, the UAE, uh, and Israel behind the scenes against uh, Iran uh, as the major backer of the Houthis. And of course, there are problems because Oman is backing a separatist group. Uh, And you can see divisions between uh, north and south, and then west and east. And there are problems that Israel sees, of course, in uh, the Bab el-Mandeb Straits. So if the Houthis keep control of the port of Hudeida, and if another group uh, will take over the port of Aden, and the Gulf of Aden uh, will become as dangerous as uh, some of uh, the parts of the Red Sea uh, are, then uh, Israel cannot uh, tolerate uh, this problem. As, as uh, we saw only a week ago or so, uh, Israel's president, uh, Itzhak Herzog, visited um, the Emirates when the third strike in a row against uh, uh, the Emirates or, or uh, a Western American-held base uh, took place. It's dangerous for Israelis now, even though a quarter of a million 
Israelis already visited uh, Dubai and the other Emirates uh, in the year and a half since the Abraham Accords uh, were, were signed. So again, it could be a launching pad against Israel, uh, much as it was against uh, Saudi Arabia. And um, we in Israel must uh, keep an eye on what is happening on, uh, in a country which seems to most Israelis very far and very desolate. Indeed. However, the, the conflict in Yemen is a conflict of many layers, uh, with uh, the maritime sphere, of course, being at least uh, attempted to be protected by uh, the U.S. Fifth Fleet uh, alongside also the British Navy and, and other navies that are uh, making extensive efforts to ensure uh, some of uh, the, the most robust uh, shipping lanes on a commercial side from the east uh, westward to, to Europe and elsewhere. Uh, and then we look into the, the regional sphere. We see Iran, we see Saudi Arabia, as Mr. Owen stated, and going down into the power struggles of the multiple tribes, aligning themselves with the different positions uh, currently at play. Uh, and I'd like to ask you, Mr. Uh, Kaleva, uh, as somebody who actually, prior to your political career, studied uh, extensively, also under uh, your service in the military, the, the various elements uh, related to uh, the situation in Yemen, going to Yemen and uh, researching from the ground and coming to a point where you were even, together with your wife, kidnapped by a specific tribe who then went and handed you over, of course, sold you and your wife to Al-Qaeda, you've been there in captivity for four months uh, or even longer than that, and then ultimately, thank God, got out of there. What is your experience uh, from this Yemeni arena going down to the, the uh, most challenging elements of the tribal wars, the tribal allegiances, the fiscal interests of uh, the various tribes, and then, of course, we'll discuss the other layers at hand to try and understand it from a more broader perspective. Yeah, Jonathan, you're right. Uh, Yemen is a very complex society, and it's, uh, I mean, the Romans called it, used to call it Arabia Felix, meaning the happy or the fertile Arabia, but it's not very happy nowadays. I mean, the, the poor people, the local people, I, first of all, I have to say I feel so sorry for them because they are the ones who are suffering the most, as it's the case normally in all the, the big uh, conflicts. But, but coming to the, the Yemeni sort of interweb of, of uh, tribes, of social status, uh, of, of the, you have the north and west, like you said, that's still prominent, the, the division. And then, of course, you have the, the Islamic extremism and you have the, the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And then, of course, you have the, the uh, to some extent, there was some, some, I mean, not when I was in captivity, but afterwards, there, there was some uh, ISIS or IS presence. More or less, people went and, and tried to affiliate themselves with the, the uh, Daesh or the, the ISIS. But when I was there uh, in 2012, 2013, four and a half months in captivity, it was funny to see how, how the, the, or not funny, but it was interesting to see how the people who actually held me, the Al-Qaeda operatives, how they had this different uh, uh, sort of, uh, their loyalty was not only to to uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, but also, of course, to their tribes and to their respective tribes. But first and foremost, I think what we need to understand is that the, the operatives considered themselves to be pious Muslims. So the Al-Qaeda members 
clearly had an idea that they were pious Muslims, they were fighting in the in the path of Allah, and the jihad that they were waging was actually a, a, a way for them to be to sort of showcase their piousness. Indeed, I'd like then to go to the uh, aspect of the various alliances. Of course, the Houthi tribe, which used to be a quite a poor north western tribe uh, on the border of Saudi Arabia um, managed to, with the help, if I may add, of the RGC, the Islamic Republic of Iran, its uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards and, and Quds Force, uh, nowadays even with Hezbollah operatives flown uh, to their from Lebanon and Syria to try and train them on drone warfare and uh, ballistic warfare, uh, have been somewhat able to conquer additional lands, which then correlates to alliances with additional tribes, alliances with uh, uh, other uh, families and groups, and then uh, provided it with quite the substantive uh, power in order to make the gains that it has managed to uh, achieve throughout this period of time. And I'd like to ask you, uh, Colonel Kemp, when we're looking from a maritime perspective, uh, the port of Hudaydah, the, the various significant ports that Mr. Owen spoke about earlier. To what degree is the Royal Navy, which is uh, one of the most active, if not the most active, in trying to protect uh, commercial shipping in that area, successful on the one hand and then concerned on the other from the Iranian presence there that obviously grants Tehran quite the leverage uh, versus the UAE versus Saudi Arabia and versus the West on, on many elements. Yeah, the Royal Navy has been, alongside the U.S. fleet there, has been uh, successful in, to some extent in deterring further attacks. We obviously don't know how many attacks were planned and that were deterred by naval ships in that region. But, uh, but clearly it's, it is a concern. It's a concern both from the perspective of um, a potential attack by uh, by Iran, by the IRGC's navy, but also uh, it operating in the region, in the area of Yemen, there, there is a concern about uh, attacks from the Houthis. And of course, you know, as, as has been mentioned, the Houthis uh, are supported extensively financially in weapons terms, in training and various other forms of backing by uh, Iran. They have the capability of firing at ships at sea and they indeed engaged and, and damaged a U.S. vessel a few years ago. They fired two U.S. naval ships, which managed to, uh, to, to deflect the missiles, the anti-ship missiles that were fired at them. And so that threat continues. It was met, of course, with airstrikes by the U.S. in retaliation. Um, but that threat continues and, and risks, of course, dragging the U.S. and also the Royal Navy into the fight at sea. They're also... Uh, the, the British still, the Americans in the past, the British still are very supportive on land of the uh, the Houthi uh, alliance that's going on, particularly supporting with, with weapons and munitions and expertise the uh, the Saudis. Perhaps we can talk about that more in a bit, but it's a, the, the Houthis are a, a very capable organization. And when you add the threat they pose to the direct threat from Iran, I think it's, you know, na naval operations in that area are very serious. Indeed. Uh, Mr. Owen, it's quite interesting to hear, of course, the, the dynamic and, and the piousness or the perceived piousness of those Al-Qaeda operatives who 
are as much loyal to Al-Qaeda as they are to their tribes, usually even more loyal to their tribes because of the blood affiliation, which blood has quite the significance in uh, the Arabian culture. But uh, if we truly look at the various elements at play, we see many different streams playing factors here, whether it's Al-Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood, that, uh, of course, is quite uh, uh, significant in certain parts of that area, but uh, also the, the Shiite dominance of that was projected with the Houthis and with Iranian finance and support then granted them the ability to forge alliances that granted them the edge. To what degree do you see this current complexity being utilized more and more by regional actors? We see also Turkey playing a bigger role in that country, uh, of course now diminished because of the UAE and, and various administrative deals that they made in that uh, area of Shauba. Um do you see this going one step further and conflagrating to a new scale? Well, it's very complex because, um, as you said, um, yes, the Houthis are uh, Shiites, but it's apparently another stream of uh, Shiites than uh, the uh, Iranians. So uh, while uh, they may uh, converge against uh, the Sunnis, they uh, may be uh, different within the, uh, the Shia. So um, uh, when one looks at the history of, um, of Yemen for the last uh, uh, 60 uh, years or so, after, um, and th this is not uh, to blame Colonel Kemp personally, but after uh, Britain uh, left uh, east of Aden, and uh, there was a vacuum uh, which gave rise to the UAE and other uh, nations, new uh, tribes, uh, tribal nations there. Um, one, one is not certain whether Yemen uh, is really one nation, two nations, three nations glued together. We all remember that there was a time, quite a long time, when there were two Yemens. Then uh, they uh, uh, reunited Perhaps uh, the conflict will only end when they split uh, two ways, perhaps three ways, with Aden becoming a sort of uh, a separate uh, entity. So yes, uh, into that morass, um, uh, great powers um, and uh, lesser powers um, uh, try to intervene. Indeed. Uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, Mr. Kav uh, Kaleva, to what degree do you see um, Yemen strategically placed and playing a key factor in the latest developments in the whole rivalry between Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran? That's a very good question, Jonathan. And it's, uh, it's, uh, first of all, I'd like to comment. I was in Aden in 2012, or like you say, Aden in, in uh, English language, and there were people there who were still looking back at the English times and saying, oh, I, I very much, they very much hoped that the British would come back and take over uh, Aden and, and rule, and, and they said maybe just for half a year, and then everything would be okay. You know, in so Israel, you know, in Israel, they also uh, wish for the British to come back. Some yeah, some yeah. Israelis half jokingly yeah. say so. But it's it's. Uh, I mean, there, there's so many layers and so many divisions within the country, and and if you can even call it a country, but it's like you said, the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran is is of course. It's not just about the, the Sunni and the Shia uh, Islam. It's also about the, who will be the, the local uh, sort of uh, superpower of this, this uh, area. And Saudi Arabia 
naturally feels cornered because now you have Houthis in in the south in Yemen. Then you have uh, they are very afraid in in Saudi Arabia of the the insurgency and the uprisings that were taking place in, for example, Bahrain, which is a Shia dominant but Sunni led uh, island. And they are super afraid of Iranian dominance or Iranian influence in Dammam area, which is uh, the the Saudi Saudi area along the Persian or the, the Arabian Gulf, as they call it, because that's where all all the oil is. So they don't want uh, Iran to to uh, incite this kind of uh, revolutionary ideas within the Shia community within Saudi Arabia, and this is causing them a lot of uh, headache. And and this. Uh, Iran is, is uh, like you said, the, the Houthis are, of course, uh, Zaydists, the, the Zaydi version of uh, Shia Islam. But Iran has never been too picky about uh, who gets to be a Shiite and who not, because they, of course, the Alawites in, uh, in uh, Syria are considered Shia enough for Iran because the Iran is furthering its own agenda through the Alawites, through the, the Zaydi Houthis. So this kind of rivalry is definitely there. And uh, the Saudis said that in a statement that if Iran gets the nuclear bomb, then the Saudis will, in a matter of months, they will get their own bomb. So they, this is uh, it's also what makes them sort of strange bedfellows with the, the Israelites in, in uh, with Israel. The, the friendship with Saudi and Israel is, of course, the common enemy that you have in Iran. Indeed. Uh, Colonel Kemp, of course, after shaking your head in acquiescence to reasserting British dominance in the region, um, I'd, I'd like to ask you in, in all practical uh, aspects, to what degree should we be concerned about uh, the developments in uh, Yemen, considering, of course, the various factors being at play on a regional, but also on a global scale. We see much more involvement in this aspect. Uh, we also uh, can remember quite uh, uh, keenly uh, the uh, designation of, of Ansar Allah, or the, the Arabic uh, term for the Houthis, uh, by the, the Trump administration. And then in a matter of, of days uh, or weeks, uh, then uh, the Biden administration decided to uh, revocate this designation under the, the classification that uh, defining the Houthis as a terrorist entity ultimately uh, harms the humanitarian conditions of the countries because they basically control the entire country and all resources coming into there, uh, which would then uh, thwart the humanitarian aid from uh, entering the country. Is there a way of solving this problem? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm very grateful that Amir did not blame me personally for the entire situation. Mm -hmm. I'm also willing at any time to return to Yemen or Israel to uh, take over again in both countries. And indeed, I'm returning to Finland in a few, a couple of weeks' time. So happy to re-exert British hegemony wherever I can. But um, yeah, I mean, that I think it was a, a grave mistake by President Biden among many great foreign policy errors that he's made since becoming president, to revoke the um, the prescription, as we call it in Britain, or the you know the designation of the Houthis as a terrorist entity, and you know his 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 stated reason for doing that was that uh, it would you know it would ease the delivery of humanitarian aid, as you say, the Houthis control most of the country. But in my view, the real reasons behind it were not so much that. The first reason, I think, was that he was very determined, as he still is, uh, in his in his quest to re-establish the JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran, to do nothing 
to alienate Iran, in fact, to appease Iran. And I think the designation of the Houthis was a part of that appeasement. And the other reason I think that he um, he took that move was purely and simply because President Trump had been the one that brought it in. And he was at the time in the process of pretty much overturning everything he could that President Trump had, had achieved. I think the designation should be re-established. And, and there is move, I think, now in the US Congress to try and bring that about. It should be done for, for a number of reasons. One, because it does send a message to Iran of strength rather than weakness. It, weakness, I think, since um, since uh, President Biden took office, his, his particular brand of weakness has, has not achieved anything anywhere, particularly in relation to negotiations on the nuclear deal. So he does need to try another path. So I think that should be done. Secondly, removing the designation was effectively giving something, giving a concession to the Houthis without anything in return. And if there is ever going to be any kind of a peace negotiation involving the Houthis and other elements within Yemen and, and maybe with external countries, then the sort of uh, label of, um, of terrorist is something that could form part of that negotiation. So I think, I think it's important that he does that. We've seen since the removal of the designation, we have seen uh, a renewal of, of aggression by the Houthis. So it hasn't achieved anything in that respect. And as far as humanitarian aid is concerned, the designation can remain in place. And as President Trump did, it is possible for the Biden administration to give license to business providers and human rights groups, NGOs, to deliver aid and deliver products to Yemen that they very, very badly need without interference. Yes, it does create extra bureaucracy for the groups that are involved in delivering aid, but I think that's a price worth paying for making it absolutely clear what the reality is of of the Houthis. And, you know, there's no question they are a terrorist group. They have carried out terrorist attacks against Indeed. American um, shipping. They have also, as we've seen, they've captured American hostages in Yemen. Uh, so they are terrorists. And, and, and the, the, that, 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 of course, is on top of the the real atrocities they carry out day in and day out in Yemen, murdering, torturing, executing in large numbers, stealing humanitarian aid that's delivered for the people that really need it, stealing it for their own resources, which is one of their main sources of funding. And of course, also firing deliberately on civilian and commercial uh, uh, infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, in, in the United Arab Emirates and, and elsewhere. And, and uh, of course, uh, with... Uh, the first attack on the UAE just uh, three and a half, four weeks ago, uh, claiming the lives of three, uh, four nationals, including two Indians. But uh, Mr. Kaleva, you, you would like to add on that? Yes, I, I fully agree with what uh, Richard Kemp said. Uh, I was just in Dubai uh, for the World Expo 2020, and, and I was there when the, the uh, missiles allegedly came and, and uh, hit Abu Dhabi. And also some of them were aimed at Dubai, but but apparently they were shot down by the, the UAE air defense. Uh, but this kind of behavior is totally unacceptable. Like uh, firing missiles at Israel uh, is totally unacceptable by the Palestinians. And, the, and, and also the, this kind of behavior must not be tolerated. And appeasement doesn't work. It never works with, with uh, uh, dictators who, who have a tendency of being totally ruthless with, with complete disregard of, of uh, human rights and the rule of law. So what we actually need now in the Middle East regarding not only the Houthis, but also Iran, is I think we need a little bit more Churchill than Chamberlain. 
And this is a problem that uh, I don't see in the Biden administration. I didn't see it in the Obama administration either, that, that this uh, kind of striking deals with Iran, which are no deals actually, which are just there, a piece of paper to say that, okay, this is peace for our time. It doesn't work. It, it never has worked and it never will work. So, so this, uh, this kind of uh, appeasement policy, it's, it's, uh, I don't know why the, the Biden administration doesn't see it for themselves. Indeed. Well, uh, I don't think we had any program with so much praise to the British Empire. Uh, but uh, let's, uh, uh, as we're drawing near to the end of the program, and the fact of the matter is, and the message is clear, uh, appeasing terrorist organizations that are willing to take the extra mile that goes beyond uh, the norms and values of Western societies, of societies that uh, do not recognize deliberate attacks as uh, a legitimate means to achieve anything. Uh, we see here a current situation in which Ansarullah or the Houthis are building up their coalition with additional uh, internationally recognized terror groups, be it Hezbollah, be it uh, the Islamist Hamas organization, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Various organizations are stepping up and openly saying, we're going to stand with you, we're going to bolster this. And, and the reference made to uh, the agreement, be it uh, uh, an opponent or a proponent of this deal, it doesn't matter. Uh, ultimately, billions of dollars into Iranian coffers will exacerbate the situation in Yemen. What can you tell us? Uh, to what degree can we uh, focus on this situation? piece of territory, be it as strategic as it may be? Well, it's hard to imagine the uh, Yemenite population uh, who are so poor and um, are eking out uh, their existence. Uh, they were at one time uh, called the Scots of uh, Arabia because uh, they, they had uh, to work under very, very dire conditions um, in order to ex uh, exist. Uh, it had, it's hard to see them getting any uh, money uh, out of these billions uh, which you are referring to. Obviously, it will only go uh, to weapons and perhaps to some corrupt leaders. And uh, one should add to the factors which you um, uh, listed, politics too, because uh, former President Saleh changed his allegiance more than once and uh, therefore complicated the situation. Well, the situation there is indeed complex, and we'll focus on the situation more often to try and understand the complexities that it also then exports to neighboring countries and uh, the region at large. But I'd like to thank Colonel Kemp, Mr. Kaleva and Mr. Owen for being part of today's panel. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.